Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dove, and today's going to be part two of my three-part series with Dr. Mensa, where we continue to take a deep dive in all things methylation. Now, part of my talk in this episode involves discussing in detail the various biochemical methylation pathways. So with that said, I linked a fairly simplified pathway chart in the show notes so that you guys could follow that part of the episode with a visual aid, hopefully making it far easier to understand. And also just a reminder for those who aren't familiar with the methylation pathways, I do break down the basics of how to interpret the pathway chart in my recent solo episode. So you guys should definitely check out that episode if you haven't already. And I'll also put a link to it in the show notes as well. And now for the disclaimer, please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Root of the Cause podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatments that we discuss on the show. Now, if you like the content on today's episode, please follow me on Apple Podcasts. And to do that, just click that plus sign at the top right of your screen, just above the show logo. I'd also love to hear feedback, so please leave me a review, as well as a five-star rating. It really helps out the podcast tremendously. Well, I hope you guys enjoy the show, and without further delay, I give you part two with Dr. Mensa. So let me ask you, we're talking about nutrients in this case, but do you ever, I'm sure there you have patients and there are many people that are, let's say, they are under methylators and they have high whole blood histamine, and they're either on an SSRI and they have seen improvement, or they're not on one, but they're in a desperate situation could you, in those cases, if they're open to it, combine both nutraceutical and pharmaceutical approaches for uh, like an additive effect or possibly a synergistic effect in those individuals who are open to it and or eager for it? Well, uh, I'll modify what you asked just a little bit here. Yeah. Um, the two processes can work together. They can okay. work simultaneously. And neither one is contraindicated for the other. The difficulty is that the nutrient process takes such a long time to get into play, and the pharmaceutical process works very rapidly. Mm-hmm. That I say that I use the, the term synergistically very loosely. Um, eventually, they do become synergistic because when you now use nutrient therapy, it actually gives the proper level of substrates that an SSRI can now dig into in order to retain serotonin in the system. So it can tremendous benefit by using what's already there, but the nutrient process also replenishes production. Okay. So you've got plenty of of resource. So yes, basically you can use both processes simultaneously. And many of our patients do because when you've got a longer term condition to really correct, you know, it's it's not going to happen yesterday or tomorrow. You've got to have something to stabilize you. So it's not necessarily a death sentence where you're going to be using the medication forever for for many people, but you need a stabilizing agent now. And unfortunately, many people get thrust into this either or situation or, you know, they're totally against medication and they just want to do things a natural way. And I get it. But in an emergency situation, if you're really spiraling, you probably need that medication to help support you until Mm. your program or process can come so the conventional thought that an SSRI takes six weeks to quote-unquote kick in, is that a little bit overstated? Yeah, no. The the average effect for most SSRIs is actually much faster. Than okay. But yeah, that makes sense. I think I alluded to a little before, and we got a little bit sidetracked, but 
Regarding Samian folate, we had discussed how folate is a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer, but um, Dr. William Walsh, and I believe you've alluded to it as well, maybe not in as blunt of terms, that SAMe, especially for undermethylators in particular, act as a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So if that is the case, would that then mean that if someone is, let's say, combining a pharmaceutical approach of an SSRI with SAMe, particularly if they have a comprehensive clinical look and you do like a full intake and you give them the appropriate dose, could that then mean that they would fare just as well on a, a lower dose of an SSRI because they're getting that inhibition of reuptake with the SAMe as well? Yes. When you, when you look at the actual rate okay, in these processes, the pharmaceutical medication is going to kick in much faster okay, mm. than even SAMe does. So when you get to a point of utility, and once the SAMe starts to, to really kick in, then you may be able to actually lower the dosage of the pharmaceutical mm. medication. You may not okay. need as much. But initially, to jumpstart that thing, you're going to need a decent dose of that pharmaceutical. So would you say this is a pretty, uh, like an appropriate strategy if someone wanted to taper off their SSRIs, use methyl, use SAMe to sort of give, I guess, like an insurance policy, like a foundation of that inhibition of reuptake so that when they taper off the drug, there'll be a balance and they won't sort of spiral? Is that well, an approach no. that you may take? No, there's, let's talk about two things now. There's, there's chemistry and then there's medicine. Now, there are a variety of factors that come into play to determine the well-being of the individual. And that well-being is not had rapidly. The mm. medication may come into play very quickly, but it is a bridge that is holding up the support for that person until this new bridge is fully developed. And then, like pouring concrete down, it's got to solidify. Okay. You don't step in wet concrete. This process can take several, several, several months. Okay, Several, several months. And then this person has got to become stable under adverse circumstances. So now you've got to test the strength of those new connections, that new biochemical support against environmental stress, uh, family job, da, 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 those types of things. So it's not where you can just all of a sudden be on both of these things and expect to now be able to um, taper off of the other. For a while, it's going to be a process whereby both are going to be on board. And that takes several, several months before anyone is ready to now start to taper off of anything. We've seen it way too many times where people who do that quite literally spiral back into the darkness, the abyss that they were in before because they did not give it enough time for both things to be in play, the medication and the nutrients. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. So regarding SAMe and folate, does it work on this CERT gene protein directly? So maybe you could speak a little bit about that. It's a little technical, but I think there are listeners who might be interested. With folate, folate does a lot of things. It doesn't just live in a vacuum where it only works on specifically methylation. It does a lot of other things, but in terms of serotonin specifically, 
is that sort of the mechanism with Sammy and folate? One sort of blocks and one enhances this cert gene. No. I think what you said was was very important. We don't want to limit either one of those agents. Let me be let me be fair to folic acid because I spent a lot of time talking about the negative side of folic acid. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Folic acid is so necessary in our bodies, it's not even funny. From the time we are embryos on, you need folic acid for cell division. You need cell, uh, folic acid for cellular replacement. It's a, it's a functional thing. When we're talking about manipulating folic acid for treatment, then we kind of get into the pros and the cons, the A's and the A's. Yeah. SAMI is, is a similar entity in that it's not just working on a, on a, on a gene, on a cert, on a whatever have you. It's got other implications as well. So when it begins its process of donating methyl, it's donating to actual structures as well, actual molecules as well. It's transferring and activating key to enzymes, hormones, and neurotransmitters in addition to working at the gene level. So both these agents are multitasking across multiple systems. Yes, some of them are indeed genes that we're talking about. Others are, are, are um, neurotransmitters. Others are enzymes. Others are other chemical agents. So I want us to think more globally about all the ways that this can be affected and not just you know the one. It's not just about the search gene. It's important and it is included, but it's not uniformly just that piece that's key. Okay, that makes sense. Especially right when you're dealing with nutrients, unlike a drug, a drug could be designed to target a specific enzyme and sort of leave it at that. Whereas I, I think you would agree with a nutrient. You can't, if you're taking something like folate, you can't just take it for the specific purpose that you want it for. It has other implications, right? So Big unless, unless yes. they alter the molecule and now it's a drug, right? So you're no longer taking a nutrient at that point. There so, you go. So I wanted to, we had spoken about, or you had mentioned the SAM to saw ratio. And that is a, you know, it's a little technical for some listeners, but I think a lot of people would appreciate it because it's pretty actionable. Now, SAM, right, which is s methionine, which is the main methyl donor in the body for an undermethylator, and correct me if I'm wrong, they have a bit of trouble making this molecule and it comes from the amino acid the precursor is methionine and if i said anything wrong just jump in and be like what the hell did you just say but that's that, i just want to give an overview for the listeners who might not know this but my question is so you have this amino acid methionine right methionine converts to sami and or sam and if you let's say do the comprehensive testing and you see that methionine levels are high and SAM is low, then I would think it's somewhat of a no-brainer that they don't convert methionine to SAM well. And you have two options. You could either help the enzyme that converts methionine to SAM and or you could just bypass that MAT enzyme and just go supplement with SAMe. But my question is, that's the no-brainer, but what if SAMe levels are low and SAW levels are high now you give SAMe as a supplement, and all you're doing is continuing the conversion of SAM to SAW, not rendering any sort of increase in SAM. You're just 
it's kind of revving that enzyme and converting it to saw, which then converts to homocysteine and so forth. So how do you sort of circumvent this dilemma with those individuals that are hyper converters from SAM to saw? Excellent question. One, I want to correct one thing, though. There are reversible reactions in play here. So it's not always about increasing saw per se, mm-hmm. okay? even in that breakdown. What happens is that the saw at elevated levels inhibits SAM from functioning. It inhibits the actual methylation process. So what you actually have to do is then you, you basically have to add other nutrients that will now push that reaction, help bring that reaction down into decreasing saw levels. Okay. And when you yeah. have the decreasing saw levels, now you're giving SAM the opportunity to actually work and methylate. So when you say decrease SAM uh, saw levels, are you saying once it's already saw, giving nutrients to actually lower the existing saw? Or are you talking about preventing saw from even building in the first place? No, what you said the first time is correct. Former, okay. You're decreasing the saw levels that are there because that's what's actually inhibiting the the methylation Mm. taking place from SAM. Okay. So, okay, gotcha. And with that then, so when you say decrease the saw levels, are you talking about trying to then hyperconvert saw to homocysteine in hopes that homocysteine goes back to methionine and then back to SAM? Well, that's the way it's going to go. I think but I yeah. just gave the audience a headache, but... <laughs> that, no, that is correct. That's exactly what tends to happen, okay? But okay. And, and that he, wouldn't result in just a vicious cycle because then once it goes to SAM, it's going to inevitably hyper convert to saw or do i have no, that no. wrong no in, in, if you're talking about let's let's talk about this circumstance that you just gave okay this situation that you just gave whereby you've got these elevated saw levels you've got um sam that's no longer functional because of that but it freezes mm-hmm. that's methylation that's what you have to take care of okay if you do not lower those saw levels you're not going to methylate very well yeah okay but the way to do that is to bring down the saw levels, and we use other agents, as I said, to bring down saw. And yes, you will now pre- continue the progression of saw to homocysteine, and then homocysteine eventually back to methionine, et cetera, et cetera. But that's also presuming that you don't have genetic SNPs in any of these other areas of the pathway. Mm-hmm. Of course, some right. people have double SNPs. They have a SNP here at this level and a SNP here at this level. You've got to circumvent both. So it's not a simple, um, it's not a simple, here's how you, you work through the cycle. And it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. It's not. It's not. Yeah. These are very, very, very complicated. You've got a great grasp of this, by the way, Doug. But oh, thank there, you. Are, there are very, very complicated pieces to this. And it's not as simple as, okay, well, I'm not making this, just give it. Okay. The question is, why aren't you making that? Okay. Uh-huh. And right, right. Indeed. Do you have other, you, you don't want to push the pathways into other directions that can be potentially negative either. Yeah. So every step in these pathways has got regulators, they've got enzymes, and they've got potential inhibitors. Mm. So basically what I'm sharing with you is that your overall process is correct. You've got to decrease the SAH in the case you gave. But at the same time, what if you've got another SNP? And you can't even convert the one to the other. So as you are, so to speak, bringing down the SAH, you're still stuck because your methionine synthase isn't going to be active. 
And right. so you're not going to bring into play this natural conversion. So each level, you've got to look at the enzyme. That's why I like the, the SAM cell ratio, because people aren't getting better. That methylation profile test gives a great idea for the physician um, how to move through this process, because you can see where those blockages and those challenges are. Yeah. So you really have to approach this more like an engineer would and almost reverse engineer the whole system to give really a personalized approach to the treatment plan, right? Oh, That's absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people don't really have, and I'm saying a lot, relatively speaking, the majority of people don't necessarily have such glitches in their system that a methylation profile is actually necessary. Mm. Okay. If you have the whole blood histamine and you treat them, the vast majority of people get better who've got a methylation challenge. But okay. let's say you've been on a protocol dove for, what, nine months, a year, and other issues have been corrected, but you still don't feel as well as you should. Okay. Now, at that point in time, a methylation profile test is ordered okay, to find out why this patient may not be responding. And you say, oh, well, look, there, there's a there's a snip here, there's a snip there, and these are the things that are blocking and, and so forth, and, and so now we've got to correct it. But then, Dov, the next question becomes, well, why did you just do that in the first place, right? Mm. Okay. One of the reasons is cost. The methylation profile is not very affordable for many people when you look at the full spectrum of testing that needs to be done. But the whole blood histamine is quite reasonable. So, exactly. yeah, And availability is also a bit of a challenge as well for many people. Okay. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So now here's, here's one yeah. thing I do add though. Yeah. Just as the whole blood histamine has its foibles, so does the SAMSA ratio. Somebody has been taking nutrients methylated fully. Ah. They heard your discussion and they're taking methionine. They heard someone else's conversation and they're taking niacinamide. Any kind of nutrient that involves methylation, if somebody's been taking it before this test, they're going to have a skewed protocol in play, a skewed reflection of what's actually happening. In other words, it's not going to be native. Okay. Gotcha. Now, with everybody reading the internet, how many people are on multivitamins, right? Yeah, Each yeah. one of those now shifts the actual concentrations of what would be in an otherwise wonderful test. Yeah. And now we have a slanted view. So I wanted to, we took a bit of a deep dive talking about the SAM to SAR ratio, but I just want to make sure for the audience who doesn't know, could you maybe just talk about what homocysteine is, what SAW is, particularly in the context of S-acetylmethionine? We, we talked about the conversion. I'm sure there's some listeners who are like, what are they talking about? So if we could just kind of go back a little bit and give an explanation just so everyone has the full story. Each of these elements that, that Dove has so appropriately uh, put together and brought out here is a key mover in a process. Okay? They are kind of like, um, I like the, the Olympics. So when you look at the, the, the track teams and they've got the relay race, okay, mm -hmm. the baton is methyl. Okay? And each one of the runners is a, a uh, role player in the methylation process. So it starts off with runner number one, methionine, carrying the baton of methyl over to runner number two, Sam. Uh, and then runner two, Sam, eventually gets to runner three, um, SAH, S-adenosyl homocysteine, 
who goes to runner number four, homocysteine, which then goes back to the thionine, the starting point. Okay. Mm-hmm. These are the main, then there's side reactions that come off and so forth and so forth. But these are all major players that we're talking about that have relationship and have a role to play. The difference, and that most people don't understand this, the difference is that in that little track pattern that we talked about, if there's a, a, a build enough weight in some of these later players, they can push the baton back in the other direction, back to the starting point. Mm-hmm. and slow things down or stop things from going whatsoever. But the methionine, the SAM, the SAH, S-adenosyl homocysteine, the homocysteine, these are all players in the methylation cycle, as we call it, okay? mm-hmm. in that, that race to generate and continue the, this whole cycle of methylation. Okay. And homocysteine can be looked at as almost like a, like an inflammatory marker and it could be it has cardiovascular implications as well so yeah. what's interesting is because saw which is acetyl homocysteine is the precursor to homocysteine for those who can't afford this sam to saw ratio test but can't afford a homocysteine test does it correlate fairly well i know it doesn't correlate perfectly but so there's so someone could actually have a really solid optimal level of homocysteine and be sky high in saw theoretically right as homocysteine is not a good marker for anything in terms of methylation. Okay. In okay. practical purposes, it absolutely is not. It is a big, big mistake. Yeah, yeah. In particular, because that you just brought up, it's also a cardiovascular uh, uh, marker, right? Cardiovascular yeah. risk marker. So if somebody in this country has diabetes or hypertension or coronary artery disease or whatever have you, homocysteine levels are going to be elevated. Irrespective of methylation. Irrespective of methylation. Right, exactly. And that, that yeah. So so it's really throwing off the patient and practitioner because they're wondering, is it methylation? Is it cardiovascular? And to your point, it's a lot of things. So God, it can't be looked at Absolutely. in a vacuum. That makes sense. So real quick, you had mentioned, kind of gave us a little teaser with regard to converting saw to homocysteine to lower those saw levels so that homocysteine can go back to methionine and the cycle can continue. Could you give us maybe some some takeaways, some even generically, what would help for that conversion? I know supposedly B3 helps that enzyme, but what would be contradictory is that B3 actually depletes methyl and someone who's an undermethylator wouldn't want to take B3. So what would one do for that conversion? Now, Dove, you know we have a rule in medicine. We don't tell what you take because people go out and do it. That's a good okay. point. I tried. So we always shy away from that. Good one. But no, we're not we're not gonna get into that. What is important is that it is for your 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 followers, your your folks listening, is that it does need to happen. Yeah. Okay. And this has all gotta be done really with a very solid orthomolecular expert. It really does. Right. Um, look how many doctors, for example, are out there struggling, wondering why they don't get benefit because they've tested homocysteine levels. Yeah, yeah. When you, and these are physicians, but they don't have these pieces of information that further guide them in the appropriate way to evaluate these different systems. Mm-hmm. And these are some brilliant people, brilliant people. So it's not for the layperson. And right. there are so many caveats, like you pointed out earlier, um, 
you got a person who's maybe interested in vitamin B3, but you know what? They're undermethylated and B3 is going to sit down and lower dopamine levels. And then they wonder why they're not feeling well. And the whole cycle of things goes on and on and on. But then you're feeding them more because you think you're trying to lower SAH. Exactly. Yeah. So it's compli- it's complicated. And for every, for every positive, there's a potential negative. Even though these are nutrients, you could arguably sort of think of them as a drug because you're taking them to actually, you know, you're taking them, I don't want to use the word manipulate, but in a sense, you are trying to manipulate those enzymes to correct the imbalances like a drug would. You are. And I want people to remember the title of Dr. Walsh's book. It's not nutrient wimpiness. Nah. It's nutrient power. Right, right, right. It's the power of any given nutrient, especially in the right dosage. Look, even traditional medicine, Doug, says, it's kind of weird. It says, on the one hand, you, you, nutrients don't work. But on the other hand, you can become toxic from some of them. Hypervitaminosis A, for example. Okay, If you have um, too much of a given nutrient or too little of a given nutrient, you can get everything from cholera to da-da-da-da. You can have uh, flushing diarrhea, da-da-da, with um, too much niacinamide, for example. These nutrients are not benign. That's why we always say, don't try this. <laughs> the TV commercial, Dove, don't try this on your own. Yeah, you must right. be a qualified expert, okay? Because you can literally make yourself very ill if you don't know enough and are not working with... You know, nutrients actually have interactions with many medications. There are many medications that actually lower zinc in your system. Most physicians don't even know that. There are many nutrients that can actually enhance the power of SSRIs. Hmm. Okay? So what does that mean, though? If you take too much of that nutrient, your, your SSRI actually becomes way too potent. And so do the side effect profiles. Right. So you have to alter the dose, but you'd have to, you'd have to know that in order to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is actually a good segue because we're talking about nutrients and the potential downsides, potential downsides if you don't know what you're doing. So I wanted to now ask you about the amino acid glycine. So many out there, like in the world of integrative and functional medicine, recommend sort of balancing one's methionine intake with glycine, irrespective of one's methyl status, since glycine is thought to help sort of buffer excess methyl without actually excreting the methyl that may be needed. So I wanted, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on that approach of, you know, sort of using glycine as like an overmethylation sort of insurance policy, if you will, just to kind of cover your butt without knowing the individual's methyl status. I've got to tell you, I, I speak very bluntly to folks because I don't like people making mistakes. Yeah. First of all, it doesn't happen. You can use as much glycine as you want. Methyl methionine is a far more powerful methylating agent than glycine is an inhibitory agent. It's not going to happen. Okay. Mm. okay. Try to balance it off. There is no balance. What people really don't know, this is what hurts situations. Not understanding the relative potency, who the prime players are in a situation versus who, as they say in basketball, the role players are or mm. who the supportive agents are. Okay, it's like saying, here's Superman of the Justice League, and we're going to balance Superman with the Flash. Okay, <laughs> That's a good analogy. I like that. I'm sorry. It does not work that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. The Kryptonian can see the Flash just as well as the Flash can move and grab him and hold him. 
you're bringing right. a you're bringing a knife to a gunfight essentially. Yeah. Okay, so it does not happen that way. Now, a more appropriate analogy, power for power, would be folic acid versus methionine. Okay, right, 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 right. Now you're talking power for power, but glycine is not it. It simply okay. isn't. Okay. Glycine is a green. Yes. Go ahead. So regarding that, regarding methionine in general. I think a lot of the same circles that talk about taking glycine, right? They'll, in, in terms of like an ancestral approach, they'll talk about how muscle meat is loaded with methionine, which is not a bad thing, especially if you're an undermethylator. But nature's way of balancing methionine is by ingestion of the organ meats, which are loaded in glycine. And while an undermethylator would do well with more methionine than other people, this is like nature's balance. But Taking what you said into account, putting the glycine aside entirely, what are your thoughts on those individuals who have concerns with taking excess methionine? Because there's a lot of a lot of talk about, you know, the possible dangers of excess methionine in terms of like longevity, as well as, you know, the possible cancer implications that's circulating in terms of the proliferation of tumors and so forth. And I'm guessing it's because they feel that when you when that methionine converts to acetylmethionine, you're causing that proliferation. Maybe you could speak to that. But what are your thoughts? Obviously, someone new who's an undermethylator is low in that in the first place, and perhaps taking it wouldn't have that same potential negative side effect. But do you think even whether you're an undermethylator or a balanced or overmethylator, that all that talk of excess methionine is far overblown and overstated? The answer is yes. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> I want people to understand something. Okay, I'm not some guy who just sits there and talks about my perspective on things. We've seen the research. We did the research. We're the inheritors of all this wonderful information that spanned 40 years before people began doing active research in this. Yeah. I want to be very clear. We train doctors globally to do what it is that we do, and they're extremely successful. We've also trained doctors abroad in our anti-cancer protocols. Mm -hmm. Protocols that help support people with cancer. Okay? I can tell you now, we've looked at that information with regard to methionine and cancer and so forth, and it is way overblown. In fact, here's the thing. If you look at gene expression, here's a gene. We have a mechanism we like to call a reader, okay, to make things very simple, that reads the gene, turns that gene into a protein or into, let's say, an activity. And let's say this is a cancer gene. Mm -hmm. Methyl molecules cover cancer genes so that they're not seen by the reading mechanism. Methyl is protective, okay, in most cancers that we're talking about here. So when you're taking in methionine, you are not helping cancer proliferate. Right. You are not. Now, I'm speaking very generally. Each cancer is very specific. Okay. But the fact is, in our treatment protocols, what we have to do, I'm going to turn the tables for a moment. Forget methionine. Let's talk about folic acid. No, I was just going to mention that. Yeah. How many people are drinking lots of dark green leafy smooth, uh, leafies in a smoothie form because they're looking for the antioxidant potential and they've got cancer? Their entire cancer institutions because I've talked to oncologists, they've talked to me about what they're doing, and they're giving dark green, leafy, dark green smoothies as part of their cancer treatment. 
Okay. Mm. Well, earlier, what did we say you needed for cell division? Folic acid. Right. What is cancer? It is a, a huge, uncontrolled proliferation of cellular division. Unchecked cellular division. Yeah. So are you going to tell me that in all logic, you're going to give folic acid to a person with cancer and think that that's the right thing to do? You're feeding the cancer. Yeah, that never made sense to me. I think actually the rationale with methionine, and you could probably speak to this better than I, is that that we know that you are feeding the cancer with folic acid or folate. And because folic acid and folate helps to sort of remethylate homocysteine into methionine, that you're indirectly increasing your methionine by taking folic, folate and folic acid. I'm not saying that I agree with that. I'm just saying I think that might be the rationale. Yeah, and, and that's where people don't understand the nature of the real nature of the cycles. Because the folic acid pathway through methyl uh, tetrahydrofolate and reductase enzyme is a backup pathway. Mm. It is not the primary pathway. It's the backup. The major pathway still moves from homocysteine pretty much to methionine. Right. Okay? That's, so, that's, the, that's the main route, whereas the other are the back roads. I gotcha. The other is the backup. And this is where a lot of this misinformation comes from, comes into play. And I'm very adamant about this because life, life and death is in the balance for many people, many scientists who are trying to help folks, and they're giving them folic acid. Now, once again, let's say Mensa's out of his mind. He doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> let's go back to, a, to an old cancer drug known as methotrexate. Okay? Yeah. You ever heard of methotrexate? Sure. Okay. So methotrexate worked very well in many cancers. Very, very well. So it's okay. basically a folate antagonist, essentially, right? Yes. What, what did we do? We happened to notice that when, um, when we gave that drug, folic acid levels got low. And so we figured, gosh, that's not a good thing. Maybe we better give folic acid with the drug <laughs> in order to support it. I'm not kidding. This is what we were doing 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. It didn't dawn on anyone. The reason why the methotrexate worked so well was because it was removing folic acid from the system. It yeah. was impeding cancer because it removed the cancer-supported agent, which is folic acid necessary for cell division. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm, very, I'm glad you cleared that up. A lot of practitioners don't talk about this. You do. Dr. William Walsh does a few, maybe a few others, but you're definitely in the minority. And I think if you know the biochemistry like you do, it makes sense logically. It really does. But I think it's a little hard for people. It's too time consuming to take a deep dive and to learn this. I think for a lot of practitioners, I think that's where the problem lies, in my opinion, to be honest. Well, right now, we don't have, we're working on it, but we don't have training in medical schools. My goal is to get these processes into medical schools so that all students can be taught this. Yeah. It's the lack of knowledge, not that people aren't bright, not that they're not brilliant, not that they're good, not good practitioners. They're working with the wrong pieces of information. Yeah. They've got skewed data points. They are making the wrong assumptions. You know, at, at some point in time, we realize that, forgive me, I'm a Star Trek fan, that we can <laughs> get from here to a, a different galaxy, but our math is wrong currently. There's something that we haven't done right at the baseline. It's going to take us in the wrong direction. It's the same here. 
And thanks to Carl Pfeiffer, Abram Hoffer, and, and quite honestly, Linus Pauling, um, we're now looking at orthomolecular pieces very differently in understanding their true role. Mm. And when you try to understand the variety here that uh, of roles that these nutrients play, I like to call them molecules now, these molecules play, you begin to take a different path in evaluating what you use and how you use them and for what you use them. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed part two with Dr. Mensa. Now, if you liked the last two episodes, be sure to stay tuned for part three, where we go over some interesting clinical pearls that Dr. Mensa lays out. I really think you guys are going to appreciate it and get a lot out of it, and I'll be releasing that next week, so stay tuned for that. Now, I also wanted to ask you guys to please take a moment to leave a review. It really goes a long way towards helping the podcast, and while you're at it, if you would, go ahead and follow the show by hitting the plus sign at the top of the podcast page. I would really appreciate it. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. But until next time, take care, everyone. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.